In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our gospel reading serves as our text for today. You may be seated. Today, Jesus places before us one of the most overquoted but under or misunderstood Bible verses. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Back in the day when I used to be on Facebook, I remember seeing a funny meme. That's a, a, it's like a picture for those of you who are not internet savvy. It's a picture with some funny caption to make, a, make some kind of point or just a joke. But it showed a picture of a page of the Bible that had this verse on it and everything else was crossed out around it as if we didn't need the rest of Jesus' words to understand what he's saying as if these words were the most important words that Jesus ever spoke and we needed to understand everything in the Bible based on this verse alone. Well, I want you to think about when you have heard others quote this verse and I also want you to think about the kinds of people that you often hear quote this verse. Usually, when I hear it, I hear it in two different contexts. First, I usually hear it as an attempt to justify some sort of sinful behavior or lifestyle. Well, you can't condemn my affair with this girl because Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. In the case of the Christian who says this, they are, maybe without realizing it, pitting some of Jesus' words against the other things that Jesus says, as if they might cancel each other out. But I also hear this verse often in the mouth of unbelievers. They use it as sort of a trump card against Christians who are standing up for some biblical teaching. Oh, you're against same-sex marriage. Well, Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. What is funny about this is that we're supposed to cower in fear when someone who doesn't even read or understand or believe the Bible quotes the Bible at us out of context as if that is the end of the discussion. So... How do we navigate between those two false understandings of this verse? How do we rightly understand and apply Jesus' words? Well, as in anything, context is king. We cannot cross out the rest of the Bible verses around it. The governing idea for this section of the Gospel of Luke that we read today, Luke chapter 6, is the first verse that we read, and we should read everything under that as sort of the heading, or the going under the heading of what Jesus says first, which is, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And so in this case, as Jesus is speaking the words of today's gospel reading to us today, these words are not a blanket call to reject and condemn all sin. Instead, Jesus is teaching us how to show mercy to those who are around us, 
And that is how we ought to understand Jesus' words, judge not, and you will not be judged. And that mercy is only found in the life of self-examination. I've talked about this from the pulpit before. But in other words, you can't be merciful unless you recognize in yourself your own sin, and then flee to God for his mercy in Christ. Here's a good Bible example of this rightly done. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, the thief on the cross, who's crucified with Jesus, hears his fellow thief, the other guy crucified with Jesus, begin to mock the Lord and say, you saved others, come down from the cross and save us too. But the one thief, he speaks up and he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So think about those words in light of our gospel reading. The thief has realized the depths of his sin. He is confronted by the consequences of his sin, and now he has fled to Christ for mercy. And in his words that Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise, Jesus forgives his sins. It is only through the forgiveness of sins that we may enter into paradise with Christ. This man saw the log in his own eye, and he asked God to forgive him. But I do want you to note something. He did correct his fellow thief. He did not refrain from speaking against that other man's sin. So... Just like we ought not refrain from speaking God's law to those who need to hear it, neither are we to speak God's law without letting it first speak to us. This is essentially what the unbeliever that I mentioned earlier before does. He doesn't let God's law speak to him and show him his own sins, but he has no problem calling out Christians for the things that he thinks are sins. Jesus has a harsh word for this. And this is probably the harshest condemnation that you'll find in the lips of Jesus. And he calls those kinds of folks hypocrites. That is, they are saying one thing but doing another. And that is often his criticism at the heart of his conflicts with the Pharisees. They are nothing but blind guides trying to appear as righteous in the eyes of those around them and in their own eyes, but really, they're nothing more than whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They have not let God's law speak to them. This is why Jesus warns us that the measure that we use against others will also be used against us. If we are willing to call homosexuality a sin, but we turn a blind eye to pornography, we're using the sixth commandment as a standard that we ourselves 
refuse to meet. St. Paul also cautions us against this in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is concerned that if he preaches the law to those in his congregations, but then goes and lives his life how he sees fit, that he would be disqualified. And he's not speaking about a race or some other sort of competition, but he is speaking about disqualification from heaven itself. This is what hypocrisy does. It disqualifies us from heaven. God has given us his law first and foremost as a mirror that we might see our own sins. And so again, this text is a call to self-examination. And so, dear friends in Christ, when was the last time that you picked up your small catechism to look at the Ten Commandments as a better way to understand your sin? Or have you taken the only God-can-judge-me approach and claim that you know your sins well enough that you don't need to spend any time at all thinking about them? I know pastors who have been told that they should not preach the law because the people in the pews already know their sins. But that kind of thinking, frankly, is deadly and dangerous. Without examining our lives in the light of the Ten Commandments, how can we actually know what God says? It's like when you were in school and you're given a reading assignment that you didn't do, but you proceed to talk and write about it anyway. The teacher probably knows what you're up to. Your classmates might not know. But the only difference there is God knows when you're just spitballing, when you're just talking the talk and not walking the walk. As I've often said, we don't, if, if we don't know the depths of our sin, we don't really know our need for a real Savior. If our sins are small, we only need a little saving. And if that's the case, then our need for Jesus begins to diminish. But as we examine ourselves in the light of God's law, we see that our sins are, in fact, great. That I am, as St. Paul says, the chief of all sinners. That I simply need a Savior from sin because my sins are so great that I need a great Savior from, the, from sin and the death that it brings. I cannot simply hide my own sins or hide them from myself or hide them from others and, and hope that they'll just go away. I need to know what they are that I might truly flee to God in Christ for his mercy. And there are great helps for this. The Catechism, which I've already mentioned, is a perfect resource. We can look at the commandments and we can see a biblical explanation that even a child can understand. And we can begin to see where we have fallen short of God's glory. And for those of you who have taken advantage of confession and absolution, you know that there's a part of that rite 
where the pastor can help you in that self-examination too. And this is the beauty of the Christian faith. That our sins are bad. They do deserve death. God does not tolerate sin. But we also have a father who is merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for sinners. He himself can deal with our sins because he is without his own. Instead, he takes them upon himself, removing the logs and specks from our eyes that we might see clearly how God would have us live, but especially that we would see that our Father in heaven is merciful toward sinners. And even as God has shown mercy in this, in allowing us to see our sins clearly and removing the guilt of them from us, He also empowers us then to turn and show mercy to others. We don't need to engage in the current societal outrage of cancel culture for failing to march in lockstep with what the world's morality and priorities are. Instead, we can speak a word of forgiveness to those who repent and seek the forgiveness that God has in Christ Jesus. That is the gift that God has given to you, and it is the charge that Christ exhorts us to live in even now. Know your sin. Flee to the Father for mercy. Turn and show mercy to those those that God has placed around you. And in this way, we become not as blind guides leading others to fall into the pit of hell, but as guides who see clearly, leading others to Christ Jesus, who in his mercy opens the eyes of the blind that they might see the God who has also forgiven them their sin. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.